Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Canada EHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. Before I get to the episode, I want to mention that in March, I'm hitting three years since I started podcasting full-time, and I want to do a Q&A episode, so I'll answer questions about Canadian history, about myself, just email craig at canadaehx.com. The year is 1941. War rages throughout Europe as Nazi Germany marches seemingly at will over the continent. England is doing its best to hold off invasion, but the near nightly bombings of the Germans have gone on unabated since September 1940, and many wonder if the Nazis will soon be marching on English soil. Across the Atlantic, in Canada, England's former colony prepares to join the war effort, and that includes wartime propaganda. A series of documentary shorts called Canada Carries On are released and carried internationally in the World in Action series. The shorts were created to boost morale among Canadians during the war, and one short stands out, Churchill's Island. Directed by Stuart Legg, a veteran of eight documentaries by this point, the film portrays military and civilian involvement in the Battle of Britain, which raged from July 10th to October 31st, 1940. Made for $4,900, the film used newsreel footage and ran for 21 minutes and 27 seconds while giving viewers their first images of the Royal Air Force in its fight with the Germans. This film might be mostly forgotten today, but it holds a special honor. Not only was it the first ever Academy Award winner for Best Documentary Short, but it was also the first Academy Award for a new organization that now has more Oscar nominations than any film organization outside of Hollywood the National Film Board of Canada. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. The story of the National Film Board, or NFB as I'll call it throughout this episode, has in many ways mirrored Canada for the past eight decades. And to understand where it came from, we need to go back to a time when movies were in their infancy. The NFB didn't just appear out of nowhere, it stood on the shoulders of those that came before, and those who laid the groundwork for what would become the film industry of Canada. In 1878, The Horse in Motion, a series of cabinet cards, was created by Edward Mewbridge. 
These cards depicted the movement of a horse and served as the first example of chronophotography. Today, this clip of a few seconds is seen as an important step in the development of motion pictures. And if you've seen the film Nope by Jordan Peele from 2022, you've seen it referenced. Celluloid photographic film and motion picture cameras began to appear by the late 1880s, and the first public film screenings began in 1895. In the autumn of 1897, as the motion pictures industry dawned, a farmer from Manitoba named James Freer bought film equipment from the Edison Film Company. He was inspired and tried to capture the farming life of the province by making short films. Called Ten Years in Manitoba, the film was simply a compilation of scenes featuring men working in a wheat field, the harvesting of a crop, a train passing over the prairie, and the arrival of the CPR Express in Winnipeg. One scene features a man stooking grain on his farm. That man happened to be Thomas Greenway, Premier of Manitoba, and he might possibly be the first politician ever to appear on film. The Canadian Pacific Railway saw the potential of such films as propaganda to attract immigrants to settle in Canada's west. The company arranged for the film to be showcased in the United Kingdom in April 1898 to encourage people to move to the Canadian prairies. And with that, the era of film and its power to shape people's opinions had arrived. Fast forward two decades, the First World War was coming to an end, and in September 1918, the Canadian government created the Canadian Government Motion Picture Bureau. This organization was the first government film production company in the world, and their goal was to advertise Canada's scenic attractions, agricultural resources, and industrial development. The Bureau distributed films throughout Canada, the Commonwealth, as well as France, Belgium, Argentina, Chile, Japan, China, and the United States. At its peak in the mid-1920s, the Bureau was releasing 1,000 prints of its films into the United States alone. Those good days for the Bureau were not to last as the world was quickly changing, though. With the Great Depression came tougher times which hit the Bureau along with budget cuts resulting in bland, poor-quality films. Its reputation declined, and because they failed to invest in sound film, the films released were seen as outdated. Frank Badgley the Bureau's director from 1927 to 1941 recommended the transition to sound films early on, but the organization didn't switch until 1934, and by then, it had lost most of its theatrical distributors. In February 1936, Ross McLean, secretary to the Canadian High Commissioner in London, recommended a study in the production of promotional films in an attempt to boost Canada's former glory as a film producer. Prime Minister William Lyme Mackenzie King agreed and appointed British filmmaker John Grierson to review growing failures of the Bureau and offer recommendations to the government. Grierson brought forward a report that led to the National Film Act, which was passed in 1939 and was written by Grierson himself. This led to the formation of the NFB. Under the Act, the Bureau was responsible for the technical production of the films, and then they would be distributed by this new organization, the NFB. As the world fell into war in 1939, Grierson recommended that the Bureau and the NFB merge for efficiency and cost-effectiveness. Two years later, in 1941, the NFB absorbed the Bureau, and one of the most prestigious film studios in the world was born. Camilo Martin Flores is the collection's curator for the NFB, and he says... In the 1930s, every province and even some cities had started to produce their own films. 
uh, with, which made this public agency lose their contracts and their relevance in the Canadian cinema landscape. The NFB was originally designed as a modestly staffed advisory board and then thankfully became an agency with a mandate to interpret Canada to Canadians and other nations. Grierson became the first commissioner, and he served from 1941 to 1945. During his first years at the helm of the organization, it grew from 50 staff to 250, and it also won that first Oscar for Churchill's Island. In the 1943 Best Documentary category, the National Film Board received two nominations for High Over the Borders and Inside Fighting China, but neither won. Hoping to regain the mass distribution that the Bureau had in the 1920s, Grierson worked with Famous Players, a major theatre chain, to have them include NFB films. Thanks to this, productions like The World in Action reached 30 to 40 million people in the United Kingdom and the United States each month. The series, Canada Carries On, reached 2.25 million people, and the newsreels released by the NFB were seen by 40 to 50 million people per week. And while Grierson did many important things in his tenure as commissioner, he changed the NFB forever by hiring one man. Norman McLaren was born in Scotland and began to experiment with animation in the 1930s. He released Seven Till Five and Camera Makes Whoopi in 1933 and 1935. Both films won prizes at the Scottish Amateur Film Festival, which was judged by Grierson. After spending time covering the Spanish Civil War as a cameraman and then working as an animator in New York City, he was invited by Grierson to come to Canada. McLaren was asked to create a promotional film to remind Canadians to mail their Christmas cards early. This became the 1941 film Mail Early, and it was the start of a career that would alter the National Film Board and animation forever. After several more films in 1942 and 1943, McLaren could no longer keep up with the demands for animation at the NFB. He asked Grierson to recruit art students so he could start a small animation team. Grierson approved the request and Studio A, the first animation studio for the NFB, was created in January 1943 with McLaren as its head. Now McLaren was a pioneer. His use of visual music, abstract film, graphical sound and drawn on film animation were revolutionary for their time. And he was instrumental in making the NFB a world leader in the world of animation. This is where I spend most of my time in filmmaking, in front of this machine and by this bench here. Because I can just, without taking the film out of the machine, I can just pull it out here and I can, uh, I can draw or, or scrape away images here. And as soon as I scrape away a few, maybe sometimes just one that I scrape, I can run it. Since then, the NFB has won seven Oscars for animated films. McLaren won one Oscar for his work and was nominated for four others between 1953 and 1968. The National Film Board would name its Montreal head office building the Norman McLaren Building to honor him and his massive impact on the organization. Camila Martin Flores says McLaren was integral to what the NFB is today. In fact, in fact, uh, McLaren's arrival at the NFB was as important as the contribution of uh, Joan Grierson. Uh, thanks to McLaren, the NFB started to produce animated film in addition to documentary. Uh, 
thus expanding to another non-mainstream film genre, which eventually made room for a francophone team that included female uh, animators. Uh, the arrival of McLaren was indeed a watershed moment since he and the NFB became one of the world's most acclaimed animators and entities in techniques such as hand-drawn animation, uh, drawn on film animation, visual music, etc. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Along with the accolades and the little gold men, there was one story that stands out. And although I can't verify its authenticity, I want to share it with you because it's a good tale nonetheless. In August 1942, after the Dieppe raid, and as reports of manacled Canadian prisoners of war spread, Grierson proposed that the NFB show how Canada treated German prisoners. A film was produced, directed by Han Wright, that showed captured German sailors playing football and enjoying meals at camps in Canada. The NFB only made one copy and sent it to the Swiss Red Cross. The organization then deliberately let it fall into the hands of the Germans. Grierson later learned that Hitler himself had seen the film and ordered the Canadians released from their manacles. But, as the fame and the prestige of the NFB grew, Grierson rarely had the support of the Canadian government. Many were openly critical of some of the films, including Inside Fighting Russia, released in 1942. Members of Parliament felt it showed support for the Russian Revolution, despite the Russians being our allies during the war, communism was still a hot-button topic in Canada. 100,000 combines harvested a quarter of a billion acres of wheat. There were exactly 100 combines in Germany at this time. And week by week, Russia was breaking new land a quarter of a world away from Berlin. Soviet leaders made a blitzkrieg against ignorance. A hundred million Russian men, women and children were taught to read and write and the time it takes a Canadian child to finish high school. Soviet leaders knew that the most vital crop in all Russia was the crop of two and a half million children springing up every year. So in half a hundred different languages, the Soviet teachers trained them to become the rulers of a new socialist state. It wasn't just the Canadian government that grew critical of Grierson. The FBI opened a file on him in 1942, feeling that his World in Action newsreel series was becoming too left-wing. When Igor Gozenko defected from the Soviet Union to Canada in 1945, he told authorities of a Soviet spy ring of Canadian communists and implicated Frida Linton, Grierson's secretary. She was considered to be a strong candidate as a spy and a warrant for her arrest was issued in 1946, but she disappeared. She eventually surrendered in 1949, but by then the charge against her was discontinued. But due to that connection, Grierson was accused of being involved with the Soviets. But nothing was ever proven. Nonetheless, the man who essentially created the NFB resigned from his position in 1945. 
At the time he resigned, the NFB had grown to a staff of 787, released more than 500 films, and received four Academy Award nominations, winning once. Replacing Grierson was Ross McLean. He had worked as a personal secretary to the Canadian High Commissioner to the United Kingdom and future Governor General Vincent Massey. It was McLean who openly criticized the standard of films coming out of the Canadian Government Motion Picture Bureau to Massey, which eventually led to the National Film Act. When the National Film Board was established, Grierson returned the favor by hiring McLean to serve as Assistant Film Commissioner. Now as Grierson's successor, McLean also found himself without support from the federal government. McLean was ordered to assist the RCMP in screening NFB employees, and the RCMP told him to fire a list of suspected employees. McLean refused to fire anyone without proof of disloyalty. In 1947, his nephew, Grant McLean, released The People Between for the National Film Board, which the government felt favored the Chinese Communist Party. Quebec Premier Maurice Duplessis, a man who saw communism as a great evil, ordered all NFB films removed from schools in the province on accusations that they supported communism. In 1949, McLean was told his contract as commissioner would not be renewed. Many members of his staff threatened to resign in protest, including Ralph Foster, the assistant commissioner. But McLean convinced them not to, because he felt those actions would harm the NFB. In 1950, McLean was replaced with William Irwin, a man who had spent years working in McLean's magazine. The government wanted him to restore the public image of the NFB, which they felt was damaged. They also wanted to combat the perceived threat of communism within the organization. While many staff were concerned about his inexperience in the film industry, Irwin quickly established himself as a supporter of the NFB and its employees. He rewrote the National Film Act to make the NFB independent from government control and moved the headquarters to Montreal to give it distance from visits by politicians in Ottawa. Now, if the RCMP thought Irwin would support their efforts, they were wrong. He too refused to fire any employees unless disloyalty was proven. Eventually, the RCMP asked that only three of the 36 employees they suspected be fired, which Irwin agreed to. Irwin centralized the film production of the NFB with one person overseeing the four departments. Then, in 1951, he began French-language film production. Irwin also took the NFB from the silver screen into people's homes. In 1953, the NFB released its first television series, Window on Canada, made in partnership with the CBC. But this was not the beginning of a beautiful friendship. In a trend that continued for two decades, the relationship between the CBC and the NFB was tenacious at best. The CBC opposed increasing NFB productions because they thought it would limit the broadcaster's growth. Those in the NFB opposed moving into television as it was seen as a lesser medium to film. But eventually, by 1955, half of the productions made by the NFB were made for television. A year later, the CBC made Hawkeye and the Last of the Mohicans, a historic drama series which prohibited any NFB involvement. Then they prevented the NFB production of Jake and the Kid from being shown on the network. After Irwin resigned as commissioner in 1953, Albert Truman took over. He was previously the president of the University of New Brunswick, and under him, the NFB moved into its new headquarters, located in Montreal, constructed between 1953 and 1956 and costing $5.25 It remained the NFB's headquarters until 2019. And despite everything the organization had done, the NFB still seemed to have trouble with governments in Canada. In September 1954, Quebec censors demanded that the NFB pay over $20,000 per year in a censorship fee. 
Truman agreed to this to avoid controversy, but he was able to reach a compromise in which censors were given one print of each film. If they found an issue, then all future prints would be censored and the NFB would pay an annual fee of $2,500 to $3,000, not $20,000. Truman eventually left his position as commissioner in 1957, and he was replaced by Guy Roberge, the first French-Canadian commissioner of the NFB. Roberge was a prominent Canadian lawyer and served as a Liberal member of the Legislative Assembly of Quebec from 1944 to 1948. He also served on the Board of Governors of the NFB. And his appointment came at a time when there was minimal French-language production at the NFB. To change this, several Quebec filmmakers were hired, and they all played seminal roles in the developing of Quebec cinema in the 1960s and the growth of the Quiet Revolution that transformed the Quebec culture throughout the decade. In 1963, the NFB released its first English-language feature-length film, Drylanders. It also marked the first film outside of the documentary format. Silent movie icon Buster Keaton also made his last silent film ever with the National Film Board. Railroader was released in 1965 and was a 25-minute series of mini-adventures as he follows the Canadian National Railway line across Canada. Ryan Bartnett wrote a graphical novel recently that centers on production of The Railroader, and he discusses its importance. Uh, well, The Railroader is a, a film from the National Film Board that came out in 1965. Uh, it was the an, an original idea from uh, an, an animation director named Gerald Potterton. Um, so one day he was driving to work at the NFB, and he saw like a little uh, rail speeder go across the tracks in front of him as he's waiting at a stoplight. And he just thought, oh, that'd be kind of a neat way to explore Canada, just on the back mm -hmm. of one of these little uh, push carts. And he went to the to the NFB, continued his work day, and just started talking about it in the canteen one day of, you know, I think I might want to do this animated film that's a travelogue of Canada with this little guy on the back of a, a rail speeder. And one of his animation friends there said, well, you should do it live action. And then someone else suggested, well, we'll have a Buster Keaton to star in it. And as Gerald tells it, uh, he, he thought that Buster Keaton at that point was dead. And uh, he was able to contact him when he was, uh, when Buster was in New York filming um, the Samuel Beckett short uh, film called film um, and basically made a deal with Buster for $6,500 and a wild duck dinner. Um, that was in his contract at some point during the trip, they would have to catch a duck and have it for <laughs> dinner. Um, and basically make this, uh, I think it's essentially a 20 minute travelogue across Canada, uh, along the, uh, the railway. As is the case in Canadian media, with the growth comes a need for more revenue. Roberge promised the creation of a film financing organization to aid Canadian productions. This proposal was approved by the Canadian government in October, 1965, and the Canadian Film Development Corporation Act was introduced in June, 1966 and approved on March 3rd, 1967. Roberge had left his position on April 1st, 1966, but he declined to choose someone to succeed him as commissioner. After Roberge came Ross McLean, his nephew, who was the new commissioner on a temporary basis. Meanwhile, the relationship between the CBC and the NFB went from bad to worse. In 1966, the CBC terminated its NFB contract after the NFB demanded the CBC air its films commercial-free, which CBC refused to do. As Canada hit its centennial year, the NFB was in fiscal decline as its budget seemed to be cut on a near-yearly basis. By this time, Hugo McPherson was appointed as the NFB's new commissioner in April 1967. 
Expenditures had reached $10 million per year. And with the cost of filming rising, McPherson asked for $500,000 from the government to prevent firing of 10% of the organization's workforce. The government refused. So in order to bring in revenue, the NFB made peace with the CBC. In 1969, the CBC and the NFB reached a new agreement where the CBC could air commercials during NFB programs. But despite this agreement, revenue declined from $2.2 million in 1968 to $1.6 million in August 1969. But amid the budget cutbacks, there was a bright spot. The previous year, Willie Dunn wrote his song, The Ballad of Crowfoot, which was turned into a 10-minute film. Not only is this considered to be the first known Canadian music video, but Dunn was the first NFB Indigenous film director. Your heart is set, your soul is cast. Stand before the council fire. You have the mind and the desire of notions wise. You speak so well and in brave deeds. Do excel, and it's 1853, and you stand the chief of Confederacy. Camila Martin Flores says the NFB's support of indigenous filmmakers was ahead of its time. Yeah, well, uh, the NFB began to support indigenous filmmakers uh, in the late 1960s, and that was an important step. Uh, indigenous filmmakers in the early 1960s were tired of being depicted by Caucasian filmmakers, and they demanded the right to have their own views on indigenous issues, arts and culture. Uh, as I mentioned before, the NFP played a crucial role in modernizing Canada's national cinemas, and by starting to include indigenous people, peoples, the NFP helped Canada outspace outpace uh, other national cinemas around the world. Uh, uh, indigenous, uh, these indigenous filmmakers were not only included, but they were given courses on cinematography, sound recording, film editing, etc., and were given the resources to record indigenous issues. It was the NFB who gave Elaine Obasawan her first film, Christmas at Moose Factory in 1971, a home. For the next half century, she would become one of the most celebrated directors, indigenous or otherwise, in Canada. She has released over 50 films with the NFB, with her most recent being Bill Reed Remembers on April 30th, 2022. In August of 1970, the government approved $1 million to cover the NFB's salaries, but McPherson was not informed. It was hoped that he would institute budget cuts before he knew he had more money. As a result, McPherson laid off 17 people that year, and suspended the computer animation program. Amid the stress of constant cutbacks, McPherson left as commissioner, and they brought in a new man named Sidney Newman. Newman had worked as a director for the NFB in the 1950s, and had spent the previous 12 years working for the BBC, where he pioneered television drama for the network. It was there he launched two shows. One was the highly successful The Avengers, while the other was a little show that some of you may have heard of, and in my personal opinion, is one of the greatest shows ever made, Doctor Who. During the Newman years, budget cuts continued as the federal government looked to cut its federal budget by $1 billion. In 1975, $500,000 was cut from the NFB budget, 
and two years later, 65 people were let go from the organization. But, as it had for so many years before, the National Film Board soldiered on and continued to put out great content and serve as a pioneering organization for up-and-coming directors. In 1975, which was the International Women's Year, Newman supported Kathleen Shannon's proposal for the NFB to focus on films made by and about women. Studio D was the first publicly funded female film production unit in the world. It was called the Jewel in the Crown Corporation, and from 1975 until its closure in 1996 due to, you guessed it, budget cuts, Studio D produced 134 films, of which three won Academy Awards. Here's Camilo Martin Flores. Well, Studio D was extremely revolutionary for its time. Uh, some of their films are still today relevant and controversial. Uh, yet, uh, I would say that Studio D was not revolutionary for what it was. What I mean is that women had made films since the very beginning, 1896, and groups of female filmmakers were formed all over the world in the late 1960s, like Australia, Feminist Film Workers Collective, or Colombia, Cine Mujer. But the topics explored by Studio D were very revolutionary. For instance, the groundbreaking Working Mothers series, which basically funded the studio, or the controversial anti-porn documentary Not a Love Story, a film about pornography from 1981. So overall, Studio D was revolutionary for placing Canadian women and Canadian women's issues front and center on the big screen. Newman was replaced by his assistant commissioner, André Lamy, in July 1975. The most notable aspect of Lamy's time was the release of several politically sensitive French-Canadian productions that Newman had banned during his tenure. These films were banned because of the October Crisis in 1970, when the Quebec separatist organization, the FLQ, kidnapped the deputy premier of Quebec, Pierre Laporte, and British diplomat James Cross. Laporte was murdered by the organization leading to the only peacetime implementation of the War Measures Act, which suspended civil liberties for a time in Canada. Lamy had advised Newman to ban the productions due to the crisis, but by 1975, Lamy felt enough time had passed for the distribution of the films. Lamy served until 1979, when James de Bougeau d'Omville became the commissioner. Like his predecessors, d'Omville faced budget cuts, but he received praise for changing the NFB policy in support in the Canadian film industry by allowing private companies, rather than the NFB, to undertake the majority of sponsored film production. It was in 1979, during his tenure, that the Encyclopedia Britannica offered to buy the NFB for $100 million, or $354 million today, but this offer was refused. And two of the most famous vignettes of the NFB were released during this time. The first was the Log Driver's Waltz, which I covered on February 8, 2022. The NFB vignette was directed by John Weldon, who had won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film in 1979 for a special delivery. The Log Driver's Waltz celebrated the art of log driving, which is the act of taking felled timber down rivers to be transported to sawmills. This was very common in the 1800s and into the 1900s. Lumberjacks would cut down the trees and transport the logs down the river and put them into the water. The river took the logs quickly, and for no cost, to the sawmill. To ensure the logs made the journey, workers walked and ran along the logs as they floated down the river. It often resembled dancing, hence the name, the Log Driver's Waltz. In 1977, CBC's Children's Programming Department had contacted the NFB 
and requested they produce several short films that could be used between programming. The federal government was also in favor of this, wanting to promote national unity. For the next three years, 80 filmmakers from across the country began to make films. But without a doubt, the most famous is The Log Driver's Waltz. If you ask any girl from the parish around What pleases her most from her head to her toes She'll say I'm not sure that it's business of yours But I do like to waltz with the log driver For he goes burning down and down white water That's where the log driver learns to step lightly It's burning down and down white water The log driver's waltz pleases girls To this day, the film is one of the most requested in the entire collection of the National Film Board. It's also been adapted into a children's book. And speaking of children's books, the second popular vignette came from the 1979 short story, The Hockey Sweater, published by Roche Carrier. It was turned into The Sweater, an animated short by the NFB the following year. The story follows a young boy who worships Maurice the Rocket Richard of the Montreal Canadiens. When he needs a new hockey sweater, his mother orders one from the Eaton's catalogue. Unfortunately, a Toronto Maple Leaf sweater arrives instead, the hated rival of the Montreal Canadiens. Mr. Eaton answered my mother's letter promptly. Two weeks after she wrote it, we received the sweater. It was one of the greatest disappointments in my life. Instead of the red, white, and blue Montreal Canadiens sweater, Mr. Eaton had sent the blue and white sweater of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I had always worn the red, white, and blue sweater of the Montreal Canadiens. All my friends wore the red, white, and blue sweater. And besides, the Toronto team was always being beaten by the Canadiens. With tears in my eyes, I summoned up the strength to say, I never wear that uniform! The film was made for $199,000 and has become one of the most popular works by the NFB. It also won the Best Animated Film Award at the 1981 British Academy Film Awards. Meanwhile, the man who oversaw those two successes left his post as commissioner in 1984 and was replaced by Francois Macarola. In order to cut costs once again, he reorganized the NFB's distribution offices. And the NFB also attempted to create its own television channel, but unfortunately this failed. He also reduced the full-time permanent staff of the organization from 1,085 in 1982 to 728 in 1989. And by the mid-1980s, the NFB had released 4,000 films since its inception, but many directors complained that resources were being drained by bureaucratic excess. Donald Britton said in McLean's in 1988, The bureaucrats waste vast amounts of money preparing useless proposals, providing lavish furnishings, and installing computers that nobody knows how to use. The board taught me my craft and still backs my films. I would hate to see it die, but to survive, every loose penny must be spent on filmmaking. At the same time, many stated that the real issue at the time was that the NFB needed another $10 million a year to fulfill its mandate, something that was not going to happen. Marcarola left in 1989, and Joan Penafather made history as the first female commissioner of the NFB. She served until 1994 and was followed by Sandra MacDonald, Jacques Bensimont, and Tom Perlmutter. Currently, the National Film Board is led by Suzanne Gouvremont, who was appointed in November 2022. 
For the past 30 years, the NFB adapted and produced films about Canada, its people, and its history, all while receiving accolades. From 1994 to today, the NFB won three Academy Awards in 1994, 2004, and 2006. And it might have another one in this year's Academy Awards as The Flying Sailor is nominated. The NFB also saw the importance of streaming earlier than most. In 2009, the NFB launched its first streaming app where you can stream hundreds of films and documentaries from the organization's vaults. Today, 6,000 films are available on the website and app, which receives hundreds of thousands of views a month. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent watching old documentaries about Canada over the past few years. By 2013, the NFB was devoting 25% of its budget to interactive media, including web documentaries in which it was a pioneer, making Canada a major player in digital storytelling. So that is the story of the National Film Board. But I want to talk to you about one more amazing film from the NFB that is still revered to this day. Norman McLaren, the man who created the animation branch of the NFB in 1942, wrote and directed and produced Neighbours. If that wasn't enough, he also created the soundtrack in a very unique way. He scratched the edge of the film, creating various blobs, lines, and triangles that the projector read as sound. And this is what it sounds like. The film follows Jean-Paul Ladecure and Grant Monroe, who represented French and English Canada respectively. They live in adjacent cardboard houses, but when a small flower blooms between their houses, they fight each other to the death over ownership of the flower. The film uses pixelation, pioneered by Monroe himself. This creates the stop-motion style of the humans in the film. At one point in the film, the two neighbors levitate, which was achieved by having the actors jump upward and photographing them at the top of their trajectory. This 8-minute film is called one of the most controversial films ever made by the NFB due to its anti-war message. The original cut included a scene of the two men murdering the family of the other man. This scene was eventually cut to make it more palatable for American audiences. But during the Vietnam War, public opinion had shifted against the war, and McLaren was able to reinstate the sequence, which is relatively tame by today's standards. The film is now revered and considered a landmark of animation and Canadian film in general. It won a Canadian Film Award and an Academy Award in 1953, and it was declared a masterwork by the Audiovisual Preservation Trust of Canada, and, perhaps most significantly, the United Nations added it to its Memory of the World program, which safeguards the documentary heritage of humanity against collective amnesia, neglect, and the ravages of time. And of course, you can watch it on the National Film Board app, website, and YouTube channel, now I'd like to thank the National Film Board for providing me with access to videos not available on their app, and also thank you to Camila Martin-Flores for speaking with me about the history of the NFB. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Library and Archives Canada, Maclean's, and Wikipedia. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, 
From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.